Hello and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. In this episode, we are talking all about mindfulness and self-compassion. I sit down with Dr. Steve Hickman, the founder and current executive director of the Center for Mindfulness at UC San Diego. This is a program of community building, clinical care, professional training, and research. Since founding the center back in 2000, Steve has taught over 50 mindfulness-based stress reduction courses. He's also developed training in mindful self-compassion. I'm so excited to share a conversation with you, and I hope that you find value in it. Let's get to the conversation right now. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, licensed marriage and family therapist. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, let's jump in. So I'm always very interested in origin stories. So I'm sure we could do, it, could, it would be much longer than the, than the time we have allotted for today, how you got to where you are, but could you give me the Cliff Notes version of your origin story and how you came to be interested in mindfulness and doing the work that you're doing? Yeah, uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist, and uh, as I went to graduate school as a second career, I had no intention whatsoever to be teaching mindfulness or anything like it. I thought I was going to be in private practice. Uh, doing psychotherapy with people. And uh, anyway, one thing led to another. I ended up doing uh, a lot of work here at UCSD in uh, our Department of Behavioral Medicine, essentially, in the Department of Psychiatry, and working with people uh, in the intersection between psychology and medicine, basically. And so I was treating, working in the uh, pain clinic for patients with chronic pain, And it was in that context that I first became exposed to mindfulness. So I learned about John Kabat-Zinn, who's sort of the founder of mindfulness interventions in the West. Uh, And I saw the possibility of mindfulness being helpful to my patients, that I was already seeing people with chronic pain and cancer and transplants and uh, other folks. And uh, that kind of caught my interest. And I ended up pursuing training to become a teacher of mindfulness-based stress reduction, but came back from that training with a vision for creating a center Mm. that offered mindfulness in a variety of ways and perhaps would be involved in research and uh, and ultimately professional training, training other people to teach mindfulness. Mm. So uh, one thing led to another, and it became the Center for Mindfulness, and uh, here we are today. Yeah, so I imagine working with clients who were experiencing chronic pain, it, you kind of came to mindfulness as something like, this is something that, that needs to be happening because this is going to be very, incredibly useful for these clients. And then, Yeah, because uh, frankly, um, as a mental health professional working with someone with a medical condition that I um, honestly can't treat directly, uh, there was a certain amount of helplessness involved. And in, in, yes, I could sort of help them relax and maybe to cope a bit better in some ways, but I really didn't feel like I had anything substantial to offer them Mm. until I really discovered that mindfulness was something quite substantial that could significantly alter their, the relationship they have with their pain and thus their quality of life and all of the rest. And so that's really the focus of mindfulness in general for me is, is tending to the relationship we have with the difficult things in our life, whether it's Mm. chronic pain or cancer or relationship issues, work challenges, life in general. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the gold is in how we, all t- how we relate to all of the things in our life, not the things themselves so mm. much. 
I've heard you describe, since we're talking about pain, I've heard you use this phrase before in other recordings that you've done, the dance with pain. And obviously there's different kinds of pain, right? There's, there's physical, chronic, you know, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain. Can you describe, you know, for the audience here and anyone who's listening, what you mean when you say the dance with pain and how that relates to, in your experience, mindfulness? Yeah, I think it's easiest to um, to describe the uh, source of that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in my work at the Chronic Pain Clinic, actually in the very early days, maybe the first year that I was teaching mindfulness and seeing patients referred to me by the pain clinic. One particular patient was referred to me, and uh, he was a a guy in his uh, late 50s, early 60s, who said to me, so he came to me with tremendous amount of pain in his neck and his back and and upper, his arms, um, as a result of having had an injury to his back and neck and having had multiple surgeries, his if you saw his x-rays, you'd be aghast at all of mm. the hardware that was in there and mm. holding him together. And he still had a tremendous amount of chronic pain and was very depressed. Um, and he said, you know what? He says, I'm a fighter. And, and this was, uh, uh, he told me that early on. And then he took the mindfulness-based stress reduction course with me. And uh, not all the way through, maybe three quarters of the way through, he spoke up in class one day and he said, this mindfulness has been amazing for me. It's just made all the difference. And you could see that he was feeling better. He was really depressed when I first met him uh, and he was doing better. And so I said, well, really tell me about it. And he said, well, he says, you know, remember I told you I'm a fighter. Mm. And he said, I grew up in Detroit, you know, tough neighborhood. And I had to fight, you know, to get along in the neighborhood. And then I went to school and I wrestled and I had to fight my way to the top of my weight class. And then I played football and my coach was always sending me in, even if I was hurt or bloody or whatever all else, and just fight my way to victory, basically. Mm. And then he said, then I went on to my career and I fought my way to the top of my field. And I had this injury and I've been fighting with this pain for like 15 years. And he said, in this course and practicing mindfulness, I learned that it was possible for me to dance with it instead. Wow. And you can feel that in your body, you know, the difference between fighting with something and dancing with it. And the key part there especially is, first of all, as I said about the relationship we have with things, this is an entirely different relationship with the same problem, pain. He was fighting with it, now he's dancing with it. And there's there's a word here, so fight against or dance with. Yeah. So you're either against or you're with. (laughs) Yeah. And when something is here and it's not going to go away, whether it's chronic pain or uh, an empty bank account or anything in between, um, the options become you can fight against the reality of things or you can find a way to relate with them. Yes. And you can feel the ease in that. And another important piece of this is that the thing... Uh, hasn't changed. Mm. And so the, the circumstances you find you're in don't have to change in order for you to experience the circumstance in a different way. So we're often very hung up on getting rid of the stressful thing. You know, I've always said, like, you know, stood in front of a group and said, you know, if you want stress reduction, okay, make a list of your 10 most stressful things and then just get rid of them. And then you'll be fine. You know, <laughs> wouldn't, right? that, wouldn't that be nice? Exactly. And if you, pro- if you could have, you probably would have. Mm, so the, yeah. obviously the issue is that these things are there, and, but you can still reduce your stress if you alter mm. your relationship, if you find a way to dance with them. Mm, yeah. And 
to be honest, I could not have just told him at the beginning of his MBSR course to just dance with his pain, right? He had to come to that conclusion by himself, which is kind of the art of teaching mindfulness to, to other mm. people. So there's, when you were talking, I was thinking about this um, activity that I do when I'm teaching acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar yes. with ACT? Yes. So I, I give, I've given some trainings at USD and at UCSD and there's this one activity I'll ask the audience, and this is an audience of therapists, right? So trained therapists, and I'll ask them to think about the thing that they struggle with most in life and to imagine that thing is in their hand and to then raise their hands. And then I'll ask the group, if for any of you this thing that you struggle with most in life just showed up in the past week, put your hands down, and nobody puts their hands down. (laughs) If this thing you struggle with most in life just occurred in the past month, put your hand down. Nobody puts their hands down. And this is a group of of trained therapists, (laughs) right? And then we keep going and going until, until we're at a couple of years. If this thing just showed up, right, and majority of the hands are usually still up. And then I'll ask the group to turn to each other and look at all the hands that are raised and say, we're therapists and we're, we're trained to, to heal and to support. And, and we still have these things that we struggle with. And if we, if we want to, if we're going to fight against these things and say, I need to get rid of them, well, then we're, we're really choosing a lifelong struggle in that because human suffering is universal and we're all going to experience pain. And if we, are, if we allow ourselves to instead turn towards the parts of ourselves that feel the most painful and feel like those deepest wounds or struggles or stressors, what if instead we turn to them and with compassion said, hey, I see you, I accept that you're here and how can we relate to each other in a new way? And because suffering and pain, so pain is inevitable. But would you say that suffering is optional? Yeah, I think uh, I would because I actually have a T-shirt that says that on the <laughs> okay, front of well, it. Perfect. So, so you know I'm on board with that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think you're right that turning towards these things uh, actually is the key to that, mm. you know, to the fact that the suffering is optional. Suffering is really has to do with the resistance to what is, right? The tricky part is um, turning towards sounds really good to, to you and me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe in, in theory it yes. sounds good to everyone, but in practice it's, mm. it's much tougher because I think there, there are two pieces in uh, – you mentioned compassion, which I'm happy to talk more about, uh, which is a piece of it, self-compassion in particular when we're turning towards our own stuff. But first and foremost, it's courage. Mm. So we don't want to look at the, you know, as Pema Children says, the places that scare you. Yes. Right? But there is potential in that. This gentleman I mentioned earlier was willing at some point to turn towards this pain uh, in such a way that he could relate differently to it and mm. dance with it. And that took a big leap of faith on his part and a lot of courage to be willing to to turn towards the thing that he hated the most mm. and was and frankly was fearful of the most. So yes. so I think naming that is important and, and and not sort of slipping past the fact that this is a really big deal for any of us to turn towards these difficult things. And how much courage it takes. 
exactly to do that. And 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 we can be kind to ourselves, which mm. is not our default in many cases. We're often pretty hard on ourselves. So um, to be patient and to be willing to slowly turn towards things, to to only take on as much as we're willing, and then close the door, go back the next hour or day and swing the door open a little mm. further, look a little closer, take some time to get uh, to slowly alter that relationship. Yeah. Um, our tendency is like, I want, I want to get rid of this now, and so I'm going to fling that door open and say, okay, you know, um, you know, the doctor said I should do this, so I'm just doing it. But sometimes that's not, mm. you know, that can overwhelm us and that can cause problems. So, so sometimes the self-compassionate thing to do is to is to, with intention, but also with caution and with loving kindness, begin to open that door slowly and see what's on the other side. Yeah. One way to think of it is, which is a way that we um, uh, introduce this idea in the Mindful Self-Compassion course, separate course from what I just described, is we, we actually draw on the board three concentric circles. Mm. And the center circle says safety, the second circle outside of it says challenge, and the third circle says overwhelm. Mm. And and we move back and forth between those places. So um, so we might come into a course or maybe just live our lives in that safety zone. Um, but we also know that uh, it's very safe there, but it's also kind of boring. And we don't really <laughs> grow or mm. change or learn in that safety Any circle. Any sort of growth needs the precursor of discomfort. Exactly. So maybe we venture out of that circle into the challenge zone. Maybe we push ourselves, you know, uh, exercise is a, is a good physical example of that. Like if we just sit in our chair all day, we're not going to get any fitter. We're not going to get any healthier, but if we're willing to exert ourselves just some, to some extent, that's where change happens. So same thing here. Are we willing to gently turn towards mm. the difficulty be a little bit curious, you know, think of it like a visitor to your house. You know, maybe you just want to peek through the peephole mm. and see what's out there. Or maybe you want to just say, okay, you can come in, but you have to stay in the entry or I'll let you come and go, you know, but I don't really want to interact with you or, Hey, sit down, let's have a cup of tea together. There's a difference in all of those and mm. it's all part of a process. So if we can turn towards that, um, we have this possibility of change. And sometimes when we turn towards it, it turn, it feels like it's too much and it goes out mm, into that overwhelm. overwhelm. And we need to tend to that and to take care of ourselves, to be kind and to say, whoa, this is too much. Mm. I need to back it off. I need to maybe go back to safety, catch my breath, find my feet, yes. and then venture out again. Feel grounded again so that I can then venture back into the challenge. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of times we're all or nothing kind of people. Yeah. Uh, and so we think, yeah, I just like gut it out and it'll it'll work. But uh, it, it typically doesn't. Because when we're in overwhelm, there's physiological reasons why we can't take in any new information we can't make any change because we're all systems are on alert and they're and they're trying to protect us cortisol is coursing through your body you're in fight or flight and it's everything becomes very um in one dimension focus exactly in moments like that part of it you know part of what happens when we're in fight or flight literally in the brain is our attention narrows to a narrow beam and we can't see options we mm. can't see anything but the threat yep. and so what we're and that really works really well if we're trying to run away from a lion exactly <laughs> not that... so well when you're maybe you know trying to 
you know, navigate a, a challenging relationship. Or, exactly, know. where you need that broader perspective. Yes. And so what we're doing in those situations with practice of mindfulness, and especially in the practice of self-compassion, is kicking in a different physiological system mm. that sort of tend and befriend system, mm-hmm. the mammalian caregiving system, that we have built in with us also to main, maintain connection, to nurture, to soothe, to comfort, mm. uh, because we're wired for that so that we can tend to our young and so they can receive our care. And so we're kicking in that other physiological system that's a little more developed than that reptilian brain yes. that's in the tender befriend, I mean, in the uh, fight, fight or flight, um, and, and creating options for ourselves. So as you're, as you're talking here about the fight or flight or the tend and befriend, I can't help but think of gender hmm. and gender discourses, right, of... You know, if there's any male listeners, I hope that there are, they may think of tend and befriend. I don't, that's not something that maybe I've necessarily been told is something that I'm supposed to be doing or that it feels mm. comfortable or, you know, the fight or flight maybe feels like that's, that's the option that feels more accessible. Right. I don't know. So I'm curious to hear, am I, is this, is, is this a thing? Is this something <laughs> that gender differences around some of these pieces here? I think there are definitely differences. I think um, I think when I said tend and befriend, I also said mammalian caregiving system because maybe it's even it's a little hard for us men to hear tend and befriend. Like that's not our job. You know, we're supposed to protect and provide and motivate yeah. and things like that. There's a lot that. of discourse and language around that, right? Which yeah, is, which is sticky and powerful. Right. Yeah. So, but if you go back to the mammalian piece. We are mammals, whether whether we're male or female, right? And we do have the wiring to, to be connected. We actually are built in such a way that we need the connections of other people, yes. that we as children need the connections of our caregivers, our parents, and as adults we need each other to live in community, to cooperate, to, to do all of that. So male, female, we all have that. Um, what often gets overlooked, especially in regards to self-compassion, which is um, where I spend a lot of my time and energy these days, is that self-compassion has kind of a yin and a yang side to it. So the yin would be more, and these are sort of complementary, but both part of self-compassion. So the yin is the more stereotypically feminine side, mm. which is uh, soothing, comforting, nurturing. Yes. And those are, that's what usually springs to mind when you say self-compassion mm-hmm. or tend and befriend. It's that side of it. Mm-hmm. And it certainly has that learning to be able to, to soothe ourselves when things are difficult, to nurture ourselves and our growth mm-hmm. and to comfort ourselves as needed. So that's all nice. But um, to the typical man raised in society today yes. that uh, is a little foreign, even if they maybe would like to be able to be that way, there are a lot of messages that we as men get that that sort of discourage that, discourage us from even having much less expressing feelings and tenderness and all right. the rest, right? So the, the on side, that's also a part of self-compassion of protecting and providing and motivating, mm. very action-oriented, very sort of stereotypically masculine in that Mm. sense. So um, protecting ourselves, like standing up to uh, something that's wrong Mm. or a behavior that's hurtful is self-compassionate or compassionate, Mm. depending on where it's directed. Um, So to say no can often be an act of self-compassion because it's protecting oneself, okay? You know, providing the sort of fundamental question of self-compassion for anybody is, is answering the question, what do I need? Mm. Okay, So providing what it is that I need in this moment. Do I need to be comforted? 
yeah, men and women, you know, both need to be comforted at times or soothed or at times or nurtured or just determining what is called for, what's needed in this moment. And then motivating is the other one. So self-compassion, often uh, we have a whole exercise in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program about motivating ourselves with compassion, how to make change in our lives by harnessing the power of self-compassion because usually what's holding us back from changing behavior is uh, not a desire to change it. You know, if, we, if we're out of shape, we probably want to exercise. We want to be in shape. We want to uh, eat right or whatever it might be. We would like to quit smoking, whatever it may be. But usually what happens is when we have trouble, str- struggle, and we don't do the thing we are supposed to be doing or we want to be doing, we beat ourselves up. Yep. <laughs> right? And we have this horrendous inner critic, and some of us have just... Uh, incredibly harsh inner critics, but most all of us have some form of an inner critic. And so you're going into this thing not with a supporter in your heart and in your mind, but with an enemy. <laughs> exactly. And usually our tendency is, and you made reference to acceptance and commitment therapy, our tendency is to act, to argue with the self mm. with mm-hmm. the self critic, and to to try to fight with it in some way yeah. or eliminate it would be ideal. Um, sort of some kind of search and destroy mission on our self critic would be nice. Um, but the idea might be that self-compassion could be a way of meeting that critic and recognizing that it's criticizing us in a hurtful way that's not helping us mm. because we we fear change if if uh, because we really might fear failure. So we don't want to try really try too hard to quit smoking because if we try and fail, if we mm. do smoke, we know we're going to get hit by this critic, and it's so painful that it's just not worth it. And it's true of a lot of different things. So, But if we can recognize that that inner critic is trying to motivate us for good, mm, like it's yes. actually trying to keep us safe, it's just doing it in a really terrible way. I, When I'm working with clients, I'll, what you're saying is really resonating because I'll, I'll share with them, you know, these these painful parts of you, whether it's shame or anger or um, comparison, judgment, hatred, like these, these parts of ourself as they, as they pop up, they're actually, because we're hardwired for them, like they're actually trying to tell us something. Mm-hmm. They're doing it in a way that's probably not effective, right? And right. is maybe keeping you stuck in place, right? Or it's, it's leading you, or because you're trying to avoid and ignore it, you're just sort of white knuckling through, right? Mm-hmm. But if instead we turn to these parts of ourselves and we said, what is this actually trying to tell me? It's not, it's not actually really useful in the way that it's trying to tell me mm-hmm. right now, but what is this actually trying to tell me is actually important to me. I find that when I do work around values with clients and we're exploring their values, if we actually, the pain can actually be an ally in our discovery of our values because it tends to show up when we feel like in some way something's rubbing up against what's actually important to us. To your example, if I want to lose weight and I have that, that inner critic saying like, you know, why can't you do it? You're so lazy. You're so this, you're so that look what everybody else is doing. So the comparison thing, shame, there's something deeply flawed and wrong with you. If instead of believing everything that these parts of us are telling ourselves, if we looked at it and we said, what is, what is all this pain actually telling me is actually really important to me and what I desire. Maybe it's that I want to live a long life to be around for my children or my grandchildren, right? And that's what's deeply important to me, what I value. So in turning towards these parts of ourself and actually in a softening to them and understanding what it is that they're actually trying to say to us, that 
in that space, we can cultivate self-compassion. Hmm. Yeah. And then, it, uh, and then it changes the relationship with mm-hmm. that, that critic. So, and you're with and not against, going yeah. back to... So you can, uh, if you can see to some extent in this exercise in mindful self-compassion does this, gives people a chance to sort of notice what com- what their inner critic says when they do this behavior mm. that they don't want to do or vice versa. Um, and uh, and then to, to actually empathize with the part of us that feels criticized by that critic. Notice what that feels like. And then to say, yeah, if I look a little closer, if I'm courageous enough, again, mm. to look mm-hmm. at that inner critic mm-hmm. and to ask that question, what is it trying mm-hmm. to tell me? Can we see how it's trying to keep me safe? You know, can we see how it's it's not just hurting me for no reason, but it's it's trying to, you know, uh, prevent me from having experiencing failure or or blame or something like that. And could we just then thank it for its efforts mm. and just say, oh, I see how you're trying to help me. It's not working so well. Um, you know, nice try, um, but thanks. Mm-hmm. And then sort of mm-hmm. see if we can find that that self-compassionate mm. voice that wants us to change, but for very different reasons, mm. that basically says. I love you and I don't want you to suffer, Mm. you know, and that's why I'd like you to make a change. Not because there's something fundamentally wrong with you as you are, but because I would like you to be healthier or to be happier or to be more, you know, fulfilled or whatever it may Mm. be. So it's really, it's not an easy thing to do, uh, but it's a, and it's a courageous thing to do, but it, it really is a way to motivate ourselves to make the kinds of changes that we all, you know, we all have things we want to change about uh, how we are in the world. So connecting mindfulness to self-compassion um, from some of Dr. Kristen Neff's work, um, we she talks about the three components of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. So there's the mindfulness component, loving kindness, and then this third piece of sort of a recognition that we have this sort of shared human condition, right, right? of being imperfect yeah. <laughs> and of experiencing pain. What I, I have, I have a lot of clients and and listeners of this podcast that I know are parents. I'm curious to hear a little bit from you if you have any thoughts on how we can integrate all these pieces into our parenting with our children and and help them cultivate and develop that self-compassion themselves. So do you have any thoughts on how parents can support their children in developing mindfulness, loving kindness toward themselves, as well as this sort of recognition that we have, we all have this shared human experience of, of pain and imperfection. Mm. Yeah. It's, and that's a big question. Yes. And we often have a, enough trouble just trying to manage this for ourselves. Here we just talked about it being a courageous process and now we're talking about influencing yes. the life of another being. Yes. Um, I often find that, that there's a bridge there though. Yeah. You know that um, just with, I was sitting with a client yesterday and this is somebody who's who's been really struggling with. I actually asked her to read um, Kristen Neff's book, Self Compassion. She came back and she's like, "I don't think I can do it," you know. Mm-hmm. And and it was, she's there's a really big struggle there. And then she started to talk about her child, who she feels like is a lot like her. And we began to talk about the compassion she has for him, mm-hmm. right? And then there was this bridge that started to build of. I can show this to him. Is there any way to turn that back towards myself? And so I think there's there's a bridge there, right? Of mm. Sometimes it feels easier to show compassion for our children, <laughs> you know? And so my thought is, can we just explore how we can do that for our kids and help them cultivate some of their own self-compassion mm. 
and then maybe through that yeah. <laughs> build the bridge to turn it towards ourselves. Yeah, I think I think it is a bridge. Sometimes we actually even invite people to, um, because it's easier for us to be, first of all, you know, Kristen's research shows that I think it's in a U.S. sample, something like 74 or 78% of people are kinder to others than they are mm-hmm. to themselves, mm-hmm. and another uh, 16 or so, 14% are are find it about equal and there's a small number who are actually kinder to themselves than others. Those people don't come to like self-compassion <laughs> they, they courses. They're good to go. Well, actually that might be a little excessive, but, um, but sometimes we will actually ask people to, uh, in a certain situations to consider their younger self mm. and could they maybe be kind to themselves as a child when, when they suffered or fell short or failed or something like that. Um, and so the same can be true with the kids. And I think, it's a, it's kind of a, like a closed system in a way, I guess, in the sense that, you know, if you would like your kids to, to be mindful and self-compassionate and happy and satisfied, mm-hmm. um, you can, you can take them to a class. There is a, there's a teen version of the mindful self-compassion program called making friends with yourself. Here at UCSD? Uh, we do offer it here at yeah. UCSD and, uh, it's, we're training teachers around the world in that program. Um, and... Uh, it's only going to be so effective if the parents aren't doing it. Um, and so this is really starts from within. So the, the, one of the blocks that people have is they feel like, and it sounds like this woman you're talking about may feel as if she's not worthy or mm. deserving of, yes. of her own kindness, which is, if you think about it, kind of sad, mm. you know, that, that someone would think that they weren't um, deserving of their own kindness. Yes. Um, so that in itself is challenging, but ultimately if she can find some way to be compassionate with herself, Mm -hmm. it will impact how she is with her child. And it's, you're modeling what it is. Yeah. And yeah. And to go back to the inner critic. So those, that inner critic that tells us, you know, that's not good enough. You're not smart enough or whatever is some kind of internalized form of what we heard in our formative periods, yes. whether we were young or in other critical points. And so, you know, the parent who is so fearful that their child is not going to, um, ter- you know, do well and be financially successful is the one who says 99% on your test. That's not good. What, what happened? Good What's enough. the one other 1%? And yeah. then, right. So it's coming from a place of wanting your child to be successful. And I think at the core of that to be safe, you know, yeah. <laughs> and for everything to be okay. But then that that criticism becomes our own voice. Exactly. And we don't question it because when we're, uh, for a lot of reasons, one is it's a sort of a voice in our head, not in a psychotic way. (laughs) Um, But it it, it is not a, a, in our experience of a self-critic, it's not that it's a hypothesis, like you might be stupid or you might not be strong enough or good enough or whatever. It's you are. Mm. And and so it's it's never in in question because when we're a kid, Mm. when we're little, and if our parent tells us something like that, you know, we're five years old and our parents says, you know, you're such a dummy. You're, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. Um, you're not in a position to say, well, mom, you know what? I actually disagree with you. Yeah. And yeah. I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to move out because I don't agree with you. You know, mm. we have to align with that person and maybe say, well, gee, maybe you're right because that keeps us connected. Right. Um, so, so who we are as parents influences who we are as children, right? And uh, a great striking example of that that I experienced in the group that we, um, a program that we started 
uh, running to teach self-compassion to men. We've been calling it Ultimate Courage. Mm. Um, we had 25 men right here at our center in San Diego. <clears throat> and, um, and we did this self-critic exercise that I mentioned earlier. And this gentleman who was probably in his 60s, kind of overweight, um, had struggled with a lot of uh, mood problems over his life, um, was just in tears at the end of this exercise. And we sort of checked in with him to see what was up. We don't often find men in tears, mm. especially in mixed groups, but this was a group of all men, and I yeah. think there was a lot of safety and comfort there, which was very cool. But what he said was, he said, you know, I've had this inner critic all my life, and I've known for a long time that it was the voice of my father. Mm. And he was so harsh and abusive. Uh, I don't know if he said abusive, but I, he was harsh and judgmental and probably verbally abusive. And I took it in, and I've hated him for all these years mm. because he was so mean to me. And I've spent all this time in therapy trying to deal with the effects of all of that. And he said, when I did this exercise and I actually was willing to turn towards and look at this voice, which was really like my father, I suddenly saw that he was scared to death mm. as a parent. He didn't know. He was ill-equipped to be a parent and he was, knew that and was afraid he was going to screw it up. And that's really where all of this behavior came from was out of his fear. And he said, when so I saw that... he begins that, to have compassion. Exactly. And so in mind. that moment, he actually could have compassion for this being, his father, who yes. he had hated for so long. And this is that both the courage and the power of self-compassion that just in that moment, everything shifted mm. for him. So, so again, that was just a reminder that, you know, you go back to that father who was so fearful of doing it wrong that he was not doing the best that he could as a parent mm. because he was just, you know, in alert mode yes. and just, you know, having to shout and demand and yes. to yeah. abuse, you know, to um, be critical yeah. in order, in hopes that maybe his kid would turn out okay. Mm. So what I'm hearing you say is that as parents, one of the best things that we can actually do is to do our own work around having compassion for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And because I work, I, I work with, I'm thinking of another client just recently that said, is this, we've been talking about self-compassion and, and getting her support. And she's like, isn't this selfish though? Isn't this mm -hmm. selfish of me to be taking resources from our family, to be caring for myself and to be taking the time to do that, to do all of this. And it just, it really struck me. I mean, there, there, she, there was this, there was this really strong held core belief that in caring for myself, it is actually selfish. Mm -hmm. But what actually came out in our conversation with each other was that by showing compassion for herself and being able to say, I need support and I need help and I, I, it's okay. I deserve, I deserve that, that in that space, in the development of compassion for herself, she's actually more able to then show up for and offer that compassion for her children and be the parent that she wants to be in alignment with, with what she says that her values deeply mm -hmm. are, you know? And so I think that sometimes self-compassion, there's a myth there that in, that's actually being selfish or self-absorbed. Self right. But what I'm hearing mm -hmm. you say that it's, is that it's not. No, and, and thankfully there's... Uh, Thanks largely to Kristen Neff. Yeah. Um, there's pretty good research that suggests just the opposite mm. of that. It, actually, there's research that suggests the opposite of almost every 
um, notion, sort of uh, notion that people have about self-compassion that, uh, you know, is a misgiving or a hesitation. So mm. selfish or self-centered or narcissistic, actually there's research that shows that people who are more self-compassionate are generally perceived more positively by their partners. Um, uh, Can engage pe- in greater levels of empathy right. for the people around them. Exactly. Mm. And so then there's also concerns that some people have about, well, self-compassion is, seems self-indulgent, you know, which is sort of in that same realm. Um, but again, kind of going back to parenting, um, what... Uh, so the compassionate parent, you know, you're a parent, I'm a parent. Our kids were small and they said, oh, mom, dad, I want ice cream for breakfast. <laughs> we know it would make them very happy if we <laughs> yes, said yes, right? Happy. But we also know as good parents, uh, presuming you are one, and I like to think <laughs> I am one, I wouldn't just give them that because that would make them happy, sure, but mm-hmm. that's not the compassionate mm-hmm. thing for their well-being, right? Mm-hmm. The compassionate thing is to, you know, to not do that and to give them something healthy. Sometimes the compassionate thing is to have boundaries. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so there is research that shows that actually even research showing that the effects of taking mindful self-compassion, the course in a group of people with diabetes, actually um, relative to p- people in a treatment-as-usual group, the people with the self-compassion training, not only reported that they were at the end better uh, you know, had a better mood and better quality of life and things like that. But their their actual uh, blood glucose levels mm. were better in in physiological the markers, right? Yeah, these because they were taking care of themselves, yeah. right? Yeah. So the self indulgent thing is to eat the ice cream or the candy or whatever. But the he- the compassionate thing for mm. one's survival is to not do that and to exercise and to do these things. So self compassion kind of points people in their own best interest towards mm. behavior change, not indulgence. And usually the other misgiving that people have, just to squeeze it in here, uh, especially in our driven uh, Western culture, I don't even know if it's just Western, but we were afraid that we're going to lose our edge. Yeah. You know, right? That that self-criticism is what's gotten me where I am today. And, you know, and uh, I'm, you know, I've always opted for the stick over the carrot because it works, right? So the... The research, again, shows that actually um, people who are more self-compassionate tend to have as high a standards as the people who are self-critical, mm-hmm. but they're actually willing to try harder and persist longer and tend to have more success because they can tolerate it when they fail, because we all do. And if we're trying, if we're an athlete, if we're an executive, if we're whatever it is we're trying to get better at or mm-hmm. climb the ladder or achieve, um, we have to be willing to tolerate the times when we fall short. Yeah. And if, if what happens when we fall short is that we beat ourselves up unmercifully with self-criticism, naturally, we're not as inclined to try as hard because we don't, who wants to tolerate that? So what we actually find is the people who are the most resilient, the most successful tend to be uh, more self-compassionate, which means that they have a compassionate inner coach, you know, that says, you know, I really wanted you to succeed. It sucks that you lost, you fell short. Let's take a look and see how how could you improve. Mm. You know, I know you want to win too, and let's figure out how to do that together rather than and you're such an idiot. that's going to be so much more sustainable moving forward and through than it would be if you fail in the inner critic who, exactly. was, who was there that maybe gave you that edge or whatever then shows up again and says... Right. Look at look at you're such a failure. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So so most of these misgivings, hesitations people have about self compassion, there's actually pretty good research suggesting the opposite. And I only say all of this because 
it might uh, invite someone into exploring self-compassion, whether it's buying Kristen Neff's book, Chris mm-hmm. Germer's book, or taking a mindful self-compassion course, uh, it's not going to convince anyone to change and be more self-compassionate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going to convince people to change is the practice itself yeah. and see what happens. And see what happens. Yeah. So you named a couple of resources. So Chris Germer's book, um, The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion, Kristen Neff, her book, Self-Compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last minute we have here, could you share the resources that we have here in San Diego at UCSD? Sure. Uh, so here at the UC San Diego Center for Mindfulness, we do offer uh, the Mindful Self-Compassion course, the eight-week course. Um, and the and that's for anyone in the community? Anybody in the community, yeah. And the Making Friends with Yourself Teen uh, Mindful Self-Compassion course is also offered here. There's also a Mindful and Compassionate Parenting course that's offered regularly. All of that can be found on our website, mindfulness.ucsd.edu. And then we as a center train uh, teachers of these programs. Uh, Lots of people are wanting to be able to share this and and teach self-compassion or mindfulness to others. And uh, that's through our UCSD uh, Mindfulness-Based Professional Training Institute, mbpti.org, where you can see all of the different training programs that we offer. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having this conversation and making the time and sitting with me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode. If you did, you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. Have a great day.